when a member of the Presbytery of Southern California says, we hope it's not too long before we see you again, I expect that there will be a minority report. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh. You know, the Lord has wonderful ways to show that He alone is infallible and inerrant. I'm so thankful that sitting on the front row is Raleigh Keller, and when I make a mistake, he will correct me. And I made a horrible faux pas today by saying that Eglon slew Ehud. And Raleigh and his wife reminded me afterwards that it is just the opposite, and they're absolutely right. It was Ehud who slew Eglon. Now, so that's very, but now the only thing is, Raleigh is a true Orthodox Presbyterian minister. He didn't stop at that. He's going to go to my presbytery and ask that they re-examine me in English Bible. So it's wonderful to be in the OPC. All righty. Are we going to sing, Alan, at the end of this? All right. Well, how about 670? Not now. 678. How's that? You'll warm the cockles of my post-millennial heart by 678. Okay. Children. Is this going to be a nationwide news? Yeah, all right. Well, they will know that I was out here. Thank you for the framed picture. I'll give my thanks at the end of this. Okay, first of all, children, what's the first question I'm going to ask you this evening? What? Well, that's, that's a great That's not what I was going to ask, but that's a good one. What was the armor? Yes, what you think I'm going to ask? You're wrong. Because I, I knew that's what you were going to Yes, sir, do you know the first question I'm going to ask tonight? Well, that's not what I was going to ask, but what are our three greatest enemies? Very good. Excellent. You get that boy an award. But that's not what I was going to ask, though, was the first question. What's the first question I'm going to ask tonight? Yes, dear. What? What? What is the first question? What, are we playing games with all this? <laughs> You're quite a logician. That's begging the question, quite literally. <laughs> you thought you were going to trick me, didn't you? Kids are smart out here. What do you feed them? <laughs> no. What's the, the first question I'm going to... Yes, sir. What? What's en, what is enmity? That's not the first question I was going to ask, but what's enmity? Warfare. Excellent. Now, the first question I'm going to ask is, what's your baptism mean? Ah, where's, where's Jennifer? Where is she? There she is. Jennifer. What is, your, what is your baptism? It is Jesus saying to you what? Is it What? That he, you really got exhausted in those games, didn't you? Yeah. That he wants you to be his, his. No, I want you to be his wife. That's right. He wants you to. He wants you to follow him faithfully. Okay. The Lord says, "I'm calling you to be mine." What's a profession of faith? You say what? You say what? Jennifer, what do you say when you make your when you profess your faith? You say, "I do." Right to the Lord Jesus. Okay. Now, next question. What's those seven pieces of armor? Yes, sir. Wait a minute. You get more, do it again slowly. You know, I'm getting real tired, I don't, and I don't count that well either. So, okay. The sh- belt, breastplate. Excellent. You got it right. Very good. Now, what do they represent? Ah, it's the, it's the belt of truth. It's the breastplate of righteousness. It's the shoes of the gospel of peace. It's the shield of... It's the helmet of, it's the sword of, which is the word of God, and it is what? 
praying with all prayer in the Spirit. Hey, that's great. You did very, very well. Now do it backwards. Terrific. I think you got them all right. That's right. Okay, great. Uh, seven B's. Who provided the armor? Yes, sir. Who provided it? The Lord Jesus. There's His active obedience, right? Okay, He provided the armor. But you must what? You must what? You put, must put it on. You must use it. You must put it on. That's right. True or false? In order for us to succeed in the battle, we must advance. False. We must what? Stand. Exactly right. Well, notice it's used, I think, three times in that, in that phrase. Okay, great. So how well did everybody do tonight? How sh- what kind of applause should our young people get for their, for their work? Excellent. Very good. Okay, tonight, in the time that we have left, we are on page 22 in your notes, the last page using more and more of your beautiful California timber for all of this paper, on page 22. We deal this evening with the theme of the fight, part four. I love the theme, victory. There is, as you know, a vicious life and death struggle for your soul, more vicious than any merely earthly war that we would be involved with. And remember, you have armor, including the armor of all prayer. What are your prospects? Your prospect is in Christ only one. And that prospect is victory. And that's what I want to consider with you this evening. Before we pray, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. And therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, 
but having seen them afar, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob when he was dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph when he was dying made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the army of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And then the book of 1 John, chapter 5. First John 5, verses 1 through 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God 
And everyone who loves Him who begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And thus far the reading of the infallible, inerrant, and finally authoritative word of the living God. Let's pray together. O Lord, we magnify you and bless you for the refreshment to body and soul of these past days. We ask that you will now enable us in all of our weariness after busy days that are at the same time refreshing times to gird up the loins of our minds to give attention to these sure promises confirmed by the blood of Christ of the victory that will indeed overcome the world. Amen. The Fight Part 4 Victory in the text for the evening, verses 4 and 5 of 1 John chapter 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our, or as some translations have it, your faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now first I want to make a note on the meaning of the word world as it's used in verse 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In the little letter of 1 John, John uses the term for world 24 times. Obviously, that was a very important and dominant concept for him. But in this portion, he uses it in a very specific way. You'll notice that in verse 3, he says, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. They are not regarded by us as something heavy and something oppressive. So when John in verse 4 is saying, this is the victory that has overcome the world... The victory that has overcome the world is a specifically a victory over a world that regards the commandments of God as a big, heavy, lead anvil on the back. That's the specific type of worldliness here. Just a few days before coming out to California, once again my own gut was wrenched as I listened to the news about a woman in New Jersey who took her little baby, but a few weeks old, and threw the baby off the bridge into a river in New Jersey to the baby's own death. And what's the reason? Because she didn't want to be burdened taking care of the child. Now that's an example of how the world will function. Command that your speech is to honor the name of the Lord. Come on, don't be such a stiff. The command, young people, that you respect your parents get away from it. That's some old idea. Fidelity to a spouse? You can't expect us to do that in our free living culture. Even the command that you respect the property of the one for whom you work, even when it means a paperclip? You really mean that? Well, if you're part of the world, you're going to say those commands are burdensome. If you're a Christian, you're going to say the Lord's yoke is easy and His burden is light. Now, in general, the world, as John uses it, is something like what Paul speaks of in Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
And he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, do present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God as your reasonable service, and don't be conformed to this, what? This world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might test and approve the good and pleasing will of God. In most cases, that's the general picture that John has. Don't, he says, let the world push you into its mold its distaste for the commandments, its godless customs, its own standards that are self-centered rather than God-centered, its goals that are not focused on the kingdom of God, its examples that have nothing whatsoever to do with Christ. Now that's the world that John says you will overcome. A world that, if it could, would kill every Christian because the Christian who's committed to Christ is a living testimony against them. Now, with that in mind, knowing that there's this powerful, vicious world before the believer. Notice in the first place that John says there is a victory. Verse 4, the last part. This is the victory, not that might overcome the world, but that has overcome the world. In principle, there's already a victory, and that victory we'll get to in just a little bit. Just notice that there is a victory. So often we see defeat. And you can understand that. Look at verse 19 of 1 John 5. The same John who says this is the victory that has overcome the world says we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, under the dark oppressive cloud of the wicked one. The wicked one who by the power of the world will take a Demas who is a follower of Christ. Demas is tickled and he loves the world and he forsakes Paul so that Paul can say with pathos, Demas, having loved this present world, has forsaken me. What a discouragement that must have been to Paul as it is even as you read it in Holy Scripture. The power of the flesh that gave a defeat to Samson as he gave in to his own flesh. The power of the devil as it oppressed Job for so long and even apparent victories. Israel's incomplete conquest of the land. Disciples of the Lord Jesus who were with Him for three years, abandoning Him as He went to the cross. Paul writing, Only Luke is with me. All have forsaken me. That's the New Testament period. Only Luke is with me. All have forsaken me. Elijah's day in the Old Testament when there were still but a few thousand that had not bowed the knee to Baal. All these apparent defeats, so often seeing defeat in our own day. So many of you look around, as I do as well, and in our own land in particular, we see an evangelical church for which the beach of truth has been eroded and eroded and eroded and eroded and eroded. And I know for a fact there's many of you discouraged even about currents you even see in our own denomination. Okay? So often we see defeat or apparent defeat. But my dear brothers and sisters, listen. The Scriptures are full of victory. Now you can look at the Bible and say, well, you know, the Bible is half empty. Or you can say the Bible is half full. Better to say it is fully full. Look at the victory of a Joseph sold into slavery in the line of the people from whom Messiah would come. But what a victory. Joseph was faithful and he was exalted 
to be second only to Pharaoh. King David, when he was young boy David, a shepherd of the flock, was faithful in keeping the sheep, guarding them even from the lion and the bear, using the weapon at his disposal, the slingshot. And by faith, David was used to slay Goliath and was made to be the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, a victory. Daniel, brought into captivity in Babylon. Do you know what that must have been like for the Israelites? God is going to make us a great nation. And wicked, oppressive Babylon comes in and in three successive waves takes them over. And Daniel, one of the princes, the bright young men of Israel, is brought in for all we would know of his parents. They would have thought he was done for good. The world got the victory, right? Uh Uh-uh. And that's wonderful story in Daniel. Daniel and his friends show that they're very different. And by faith, they overcome even the power of a Nebuchadnezzar. And that really happened. That really happened in history. Or other examples that we can cite. We mentioned Samson. Did he not vanquish the Philistines? Was not Job the one who was a man regarded as righteous? Here in the New Testament is Paul. You folks think you have bad days? Listen to Paul. In stripes beyond measure. In prisons often. Five times I received 40 minus one stripe. And for you children, that means 195 times. Paul had a lash with pieces of bone and stone in it raked against his back 195 times. One time I was stoned, shipwrecked, night and day in the sea, journeys and perils in the wilderness, in the land and in the city. But he says in another place, the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me unto His heavenly kingdom. That's in 2 Timothy, the other in 2 Corinthians. And I love to think of what it might have been like. Many believe that 2 Timothy was written just a few hours before Paul was put to death by beheading in Rome. We don't know that exactly, but isn't it neat to think of that? Paul was in prison as he wrote 2 Timothy. He can recall all of these things that he had faced. And he said, but the Lord will deliver me from every evil work, not a sense of defeat. My brothers and sisters, whether you think of David, whether you think of Job or Samson or Paul or John on the Isle of Patmos who sees heaven opened up and a picture of the victory of Christ to come or Stephen who in the process of being stoned sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, Jesus' act to protect Him, or Christ Himself victorious on the cross. My friends, don't you ever, ever read your Bible with the word defeat anywhere in it. There are no defeats. No defeats at all. Any soldier who thinks there is no hope of victory would have at best a very difficult time fighting with a full heart. But when a soldier has confidence that he will win, he will fight with everything in him. And my friends, you are soldiers of Christ. 
You are soldiers in the battle of the Lord. And there is an assured promise of victory. Notice the text again. This is the victory that has overcome the world. God says in my own decree, confirmed by the blood of Christ by which my own elect will be saved and kept unto glory, I can say it is sure and true that your faith will be the means by which you will overcome the world. Number one, there is a victory. Don't ever speak of defeat. And don't be defeatist. Now, look at the source of that victory. The source is the new birth. In the five chapters of 1 John, eight times John speaks of the new birth. In verse 4, the first part, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. The source of your victory is the new birth. In terms of your own experience, the source of your victory is the new birth. Now, the reason there is a new birth is because of the work of Christ. But in terms of you, yourself, source of your victory, the new birth. What is it? The new birth is an inward change. Not a change of mind only, but it is a change within. That's why it's called a new heart. It is a heart that Christ Himself gives you. Remember, you have a bad heart. You have a dead heart. If you have a dead heart, you need a donor. Jesus says, I'll be the one who will give myself to you. You have a new heart, the very heart of God in you, and therefore there is a new principle. John says, those who are born again have the seed of God abiding in them. And there is a treatment that some men get for a certain form of cancer in which there are radioactive seeds. I wonder if Mr. McHarg, Dr. McHarg can tell us about those kinds of seeds. But you're not going to tell us about that right now, right? No, okay. <laughs> uh, a radioactive seed that is placed in the body. And that seed abides in the person to prolong the life and to destroy the cancer. And so in the same way, the very life of God abides in the Lord's people with a new nature to destroy sin and to give them life and victory. It is an inward change. It is a new nature. It is an inward change with a new nature that is so powerful, it is life from the dead. You see, what is the new birth? And folks, you probably heard this before, but don't ever weary of listening to it. See, we're in a world in which people want power, and they'll use their crystals, and they'll use their meditation techniques, and they will use yoga, now, they will use all kinds of things because they want power. And again, don't cower before that and say, well, we're not interested in power. But you know what the new birth is? It's the power of Christ who 2,000 years ago was raised from the dead. Imagine that. Here's a body in the tomb just about ready to stink. And a massive stone holding that grave so that there'd be no way the body could be stolen. Roman guards around it. But on the third day, God brings a power to that cadaver that is in the tomb. And Jesus is raised from the dead. What a glorious power that is. And the stone is rolled away. And Jesus shows Himself to be not somebody who slept for a few days, but who was dead and is now alive. And you say, wow! Two thousand years ago. That's great. But you don't have to go back two thousand years. 
Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. all these pictures you folks are taking tonight the only time in New York they take this number of pictures is when somebody's accused of murdering somebody <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15 therefore I also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus that faith comes from a new heart and from new birth after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints do not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you might know what is the hope. Now notice that you might know. He wants them to know. He wants them to grasp. He wants their inmost being to be gripped with these truths, that you might know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And this, he says, is the other thing. Paul says, I want to beat in your breast as you go through your life in Ephesus, I also want you to know not what is power, not what is the greatness of power, but I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. It is power that is according to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Here are dead sinners in whatever period in life, the year 2000. And God says, I'm going to show the world the power of My Son. I will take those dead sinners and I will raise them to life taking the very power of heaven with which I raised Jesus and putting it in their breast. My friend, are you born again by grace? Then you have in you that very same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And then Jesus allows you to live in the world to show that power to others. It is life from the dead. So you can say, raised in Christ, seated with Him, in the same way there is not a blast of condemnation that can come to Christ in heaven. None can come to me. No power of death will touch Christ ever again. It won't touch me. He is delivered from the power of the world as He sits in heaven, and I too am delivered from the power of the world in Him. About a year ago, a pastor friend of mine whose son had not mortified sin and had gotten hooked up with drug dealers and nearly destroyed himself was after a period of lengthy, extensive dealings gloriously brought to a place of real religion, real change of heart, real change of being. If repentance is the vomit of the soul, then their kitchen was a mess. Genuine change. This was a man that had been prayed for in many of the churches up in Connecticut, New York, New England, one of the ministers of that presbytery. Our folks knew about it. It was public knowledge. I spoke with the pastor a few weeks after his son came back gloriously converted. He said, Bill, you know what it's like in our house? It's like life from the dead. And that's it. That's exactly what it is. Life from the dead. 
the very heart of God put in God's people. They are raised from the dead and they are given a new status. New nature, life from the dead, a new status. They are now children of God. They have the spirit of adoption by which they cry out, Abba, Father. You see, forgiveness, folks, gives you a title to heaven. Bathed in the blood of Christ. Covered with His righteousness. You can say, now I can stand before God at the last day and be with Him forever. But the new birth gives you a heart for heaven. Forgiveness, a title. The new birth, a heart for heaven. The very heart of God who overcame the world is in you. And therefore, you've got a heart to overcome the world. And all of that is seen by its outward effects. The Spirit is like the wind. And you know, you don't see the wind. But you see the tree branches blow. You don't see the way the Spirit works giving a new heart. But you see limbs and legs and mouths and bodies that move to serve the Lord God. That's how you know the Spirit works. Seen by the outward effect, especially faith in Christ. You see that in verse 1, going back to 1 John chapter 5. The Catechism and the Confession rightly say that the principal act of saving faith is a receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ as He is freely offered in the Gospel. And so, those who are born of God are those who believe in Christ. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is or has been born of God. The evidence of being born of God is that you believe that Jesus is Messiah. He is your all and all. And my friends, don't ever take your new heart for granted. Especially as you get older, you don't take your heart for granted. You go to a doctor who tells you, you know, your heart's a powerful thing and it is an awesome thing. See, I don't like the way the word awesome is misused by young people, so I try to use it in a good way. It is awesome. You know, your heart's just about the size of your fist, a little bit smaller. That thing pumps blood throughout your body, giving oxygen to your body. That heart stops and you're dead. God gives you a new heart. You take care of it. You feed it well. You exercise it well. You take care of it, see? Okay, the new heart, that's the source, okay? Source of the victory, the new birth. There is a victory, source, the new birth. But now, what is its power? Well, you've already seen it in the text, 1 John 5, the last part of verse 4, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our or your faith. What is this faith? This is not the shield of faith. Shield of faith last night would be the shield of the faith. The faith once delivered to the saints. Those things that, yes, I believe, but they're the things I believe that I put before the fiery darts of the devil. This, though, is an internal principle. Your faith, our faith, a gift of God. It is an internal principle that looks above and beyond this world. That's the faith that overcomes this world. An internal principle that looks above and beyond this world. Now, children, let me give you an illustration from the Old Testament about what this faith is. In the book of Numbers, I think chapter 13, if I'm wrong, Pastor Keller can correct me. Somewhere in Numbers, I think it's Numbers 13. There's a story about spies. Twelve spies are, cho are, are chosen from the twelve tribes of Israel 
and they are all to go up into the land of Canaan. And they all go into the land of Canaan, and there's some good ones. Caleb and Joshua are good ones. And they come back. The bad ones say, oh, there's giants in the land. The good ones say this, yes, but in that land there is milk and there is honey and we've even brought back clusters of these magnificent fruits. I don't think they were kumquats, but they were magnificent, nothing against kumquats, but they were probably grapes, clusters of fruits from the land of Canaan. And he said, now what on earth does that have to do with faith? Faith is like those good spies. Faith goes to the Word of God in which the new heavens and the new earth are promised to God's people. And faith is a good spy that says, oh, that's a great land. God is there. The spirits of just men made perfect are there and one day they'll be joined to bodies as well. And Jesus is there. The bread and the water of life. It's a place of communion with God. It's a great land. That's where faith goes. Now sight says, what do you want to go there for? Look at the wonderful things we've got in this life. We've got TV and movies and Nintendo and the United States of America and maybe a change in the presidential administration upcoming and amusement parks like Disneyland and Disney World and money and investments. This is a great world. What do you want to go there for? Faith says, because that world is a whole lot better than this one. Because see, here's the difference. This world worships the creature. Sight says, I will live with what I can see and what's here to gratify my flesh. Faith says, I lay hold of God and there's nothing greater. Nothing greater. That's the faith that's in view here that overcomes the world. And so you read in Hebrews 11, things like this. By faith, the people of old were waiting for a city a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's why Abraham didn't mind tents. Abraham probably died in a tent. But his faith was victorious because now he's part of that city whose builder and maker is God. Having seen the promises afar off, they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth, that they desired a heavenly country. And people say, what does that have to do with God? Well, the text answers it. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call them brethren because He has prepared a place for them. That, my friends, ought to bring tears to your eyes. Here is God who looks upon a mass of sinful humanity, image of God that has distorted itself, a world that man has put under the wretched refuse of the curse. But God has His elect ones that Jesus has redeemed and that the Spirit comes into history to save. And God so works in them that they say in the midst of the world that God who saved us by His Son has prepared us for heavenly city. 
And God looks down and smiles and says, may I say it reverently? I'm proud. I'm proud to call those pilgrims my children. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. The opposite is he's proud to do it. They're people of faith. So how do they live? What is that faith that overcomes the world? It's an internal principle that looks above and beyond this world and sees the existence of unseen objects. A world that is to come. New heavens and new earth and glorious things and the presence of God and the service of God forever and ever with no curse and no sweat and no toil and no thorns and as beautiful as the flowers are here, they'll be more beautiful in glory. And as majestic as the trees are here, they'll be majestic in glory. And faith sees those unseen objects in that unseen world. And compared to that world, the frowns and the cursings and the smitings of this world are just a little bit of hot air. Faith sees the God of heaven and heaven itself and the judgment to come and hell and eternity is not just words. Faith says these are substantial realities. Oh world, don't you realize you are heading to hell in a handbasket unless you repent? How do you know? By faith in the Word. I can see those things. What do the Scriptures say? We are the ones on whom the ends of the ages have come. And so the things of heaven impinge upon our breast and the things of hell impinge upon our breast. And God and His glory and the Son and His righteousness are those things that are real to us, substantial realities, and compared to them, everything else is shadowy. Someplace in the Narnia Chronicles, one of the seven volumes, I don't know which, there's a little section in which one of these talking creatures... How many of you children have read the Narnia Chronicles? Not just the first one, which is really the best. But the other ones, it's sometimes kind of weird, but it's a good series. Are you read them? Read them? There's one place in there where one of the creatures says to Lucy or something. Lucy says, is this Narnia? Is this world real? And you know, you're kind of saying the same thing. Is this world real? And the creature says, oh, Narnia is even more real than the world from which you come. That's the way you need to think about heaven. It is even more real. Not that this world is unreal. But God has spoken of heaven. And because of the way sin distorts us, sometimes you can't even trust your eyes here. That very real world. Faith above all else sees by faith an unseen Savior. In this book I know He loved me and He gave Himself for me and He is in heaven and I see Him and behold Him. Faith sees Him above all else. The heart is drawn to love Him. The heart is drawn to set affections on things above. The heart is drawn to love Him who died for me so that by faith you sing love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my strength, my life my all. That's what faith does. Because it sees that love in Scripture and knows that incarnate love is in glory. And seeing Him, it longs for His favor. My preacher friends, you've got an evangelical climate that tells you basically this. When you organize your worship, when you preach, 
when you do what you do on your Sunday. Do it so you get the smiles of your audience. Because if they smile and they're happy, they'll come back. I want to challenge you to so organize your worship and so preach and so live that God smiles on what you do. Now when God smiles, the right people will smile too. Because if you please the Lord, you're automatically going to please the right people. But when one has faith in heaven, the citizen this side of glory says, Oh Lord, if I could part the sky, I would want to see your smile upon my every thought. The 1500s were brought up in a period that was sunk in the darkness of superstition, magic in the name of religion, and all the debauchery that came from it. And they saw in this book the sterling, pure, refined gold of the Word of God and the pictures of a glory to come that had a power to form a holy citizenry here. And they were transformed. They lived by faith. And the lights began to go on in Europe and in England and in Scotland and in Ireland and in Wales and in America and eventually to many nations of the earth. Why? Because they had a faith that said, this book is the Word of God. Jesus is the only Savior. He is the Lord. And we bow to Him. And the man would cut off our head trying to make us subservient to it. We know no other ultimate master than Jesus. And their faith overcame the world. David Brainerd, one who would have been a son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards, sickly, weak man, who saw the Indians around him in New England, knew that they were the image of God, was grieved over the way they had defiled that image. And he read his Bible. And he realized that God had promises for people like that. And he gave his own precious short life to bring the gospel to people, many of whom were converted and never the same again. That was the victory that overcame the world. The faith of a David Brainerd, a William Carey, before his hyper-Calvinistic Baptist leaders of his day looked at his Bible and said, this Jesus who reigns in glory says, before He'll come back, He'll have the nations as His inheritance. And God has put a burden for one India in my breast. And they said, what do you want to go to India for? If the Lord's got His elect there, He'll save them anyway. And Bernard said, no. There's to be the preaching of the Gospel. And his faith brought the victory that in that portion of the world known as Egypt began to see the salvation of many Indians under his influence. In the public sphere, William Wilberforce, who, after going through his agonies over his own Christian life, came to see that this Christ who reigned in glory had a concern that those in the civil realm live to the glory of Christ. And Wilberforce knew he couldn't do anything, but he had one burden. He saw the way the Negroes were being treated worse than animals. And his prayer was that he would be able to live to see them freed. Is that gospel? No. But that's salt and that's light of a man in whom the gospel dwelt. And for 30 years, Wilberforce labored 
until he could finally see, just about the time of his death, the slaves freed in England and the black man treated like a human being. That was victory. That was a faith that had a victory to it that overcame the world. And you know, I couldn't help but think today as Dr. McHarg did that unforgettable little nature tour, just a little bit too short. Could have gone on for a few hours and it would have been too short with all that he knows. But you know, I thought about George Washington Carver, and you have to ask Dr. McHarg to tell you about that. I think, Dr. McHarg, with all due respect to your knowledge, I think that George Washington Carver knew even more about peanuts even than you do. Uh, I'm not sure, but I would guess that. I think so. You know, George Washington Carver, how many of you children have ever read about the peanut man, George Washington Carver? That great story. He was a, a very genuine, committed Christian. And George Washington Carver had a number of burdens. He was very burdened for his own people, that they get good education. And he himself was trained, self-trained, had to work his way through school and so on. And he was a fascinating man. He was fascinated by peanuts. By the time George Washington Carver done, I think Dr. McHarg, if I'm right, he found over 300 things that you could do with peanuts. I can come up with three. Peanut butter, peanut brittle, and peanut fudge. And that's about it. None of which I can eat. But, okay, 300 of those things. But you know why? See, George Washington Carver was a very simple man. He hadn't received the top flight seminary training. He just read his Bible and believed it. And he said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. And you know, I believe that God has wonderful things in the peanut. And He unearthed many of those things. And God used that man to raise so much respect for His own race. And God used that man to elevate many others of His people who, like Him, could be worthwhile and useful in the world. That was the victory that for him overcame the world of his day when he was opposed because his skin color was different. But the victory for him that overcame the world was his faith. Why does this always work? Because it is Christ's own life and His own confidence working in you. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that in Me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus' order is that He works in you, giving you His heart, giving you His life, giving you His confidence, giving you His power, and that works it out as faith. And that faith will overcome the world. Let me give you young people an illustration. Every so often you hear stories, and they, they frankly amaze me. They scare me when I think as I think of one of my own children being in this. A story of a child, eight or nine year old person, and sometimes young, some of you in here, in a plane and as a pilot. Can you imagine how scary this is? And the pilot has a heart attack. I mean, can you imagine what it's like to be up in little old Cessna, a couple of people up there in a plane, and the pilot's there at the controls, and you're nine years old, imagine seeing everything that's glorious. All of a sudden, the person goes, <gasps> and keels over, and you're several thousand feet up in the air. What do you do? Well, you want a sense of weakness and helplessness? That's it. But what often happens? Radio will control in, and there'll be an experienced pilot. Say, don't worry. Don't be defeated. Don't be afraid. Just the way I told you, don't be defeated. Here's what you do. See this long stick in front of you? That's a throttle. See this kind of half-circle thing there? That's a wheel. And an experienced pilot on the earth will so direct that 
nine-year-old child, that his directions become the guidance for that child's hands and eyes so that even a weak, helpless, impotent, inexperienced child can get that old plane down on the runway and run to the embrace of mommy and daddy. Now that's what Jesus does in glory. From heaven, from that place of guidance, he says, I know it's a scary world, but you follow my directions to a T and I'll get you home safe. That's the victory that overcomes the world, even your faith. And my friends, that's why if you want to know the directions every day, read the Word of God and look to the commanding pilot and ask for his directions. There is, my friends, a defeat that is overcome by the world. And that's unbelief. Many professing Protestant churches are affirmations of that statement that unbelief brings defeat. I don't know about you in California, but in New York we have church after church after church, and by that I mean building, where there's nobody there on Sunday except maybe a women's club or some Unitarian group. Churches where the gospel was once preached, but the gospel has not been preached there. And Jesus says, because you lost your faith, you lost your church. There is a defeat that overcomes the world, our unbelief. My friends, don't you be faithless, but be believing. In the world, Jesus says, you will have tribulation. And so you say as you leave this conference, I know Jesus has said, in the world, I will have tribulation. And some Christians want to stop there. They're constitutionally made that way. In the world, I will have tribulation. It's in the Bible. It's like that dear Scottish woman. And after a worship service on Sunday morning, an OPC minister was there, and he came up, buoyant as Orthodox Presbyterian ministers are, joyous and happy, and he came, and the woman was sitting down on a little bench, and he sat down next to the Scottish woman who'd been at worship, and he said, Ah, isn't it a beautiful, glorious Sabbath? And she said, Aye, and we're going to pay for it too. Don't you be like that. Don't stop with, in the world, you will have tribulation. You go this far. But take courage. My Jesus has overcome the world. Take this promise. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. You believe it? That means you. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Yours and yours and yours and yours and mine. Therefore, with Paul, you can say, Most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's a glorious statement of Jesus, who's the commander-in-chief with all authority in heaven and on earth. Why? Ask our military men who are here. The best Military commanders know how to take the weaknesses of their troops and turn them into strength. And Jesus does it 
perfectly. But the best one, as you load your soul with those truths that will animate the power of Christ in you, your faith by which you overcome the world, the best one is this. Let the devil come at you with all of his power and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you say to the devil, Devil, you hurl what you want. In all of these things, I am more than a conqueror through Christ. Death, life, angels, things present, things to come, height, depth, nothing shall be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. Practically speaking, children, what are our three great enemies? What are they again? The what? The world, the flesh, and the devil. World, you go ahead and blow all of your gales against me, and they will cause me to run into the refuge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll stop before He will. Flesh, you may rage within me like so many storms, but those storms will drive me under the blessed wing of my great Jesus who gathers me. And He'll be there when your storm goes by. And the last one's the devil. Devil, you can blow and blow and blow and blow like the wolf. And Jesus so reigns over your raging that your gusts of wind will take the little bark of my soul and you will blow me into the harbor of heaven. That's what it means that Jesus has overcome even the devil. He'll take the ragings of the devil. He'll take the slaps of the devil. And with him, he'll take you to heaven. And the result will be when you get there when you at last get to glory, and oh, my dear brothers and sisters, young and old, I pray that every one of us are there. Because if this fellowship is great, imagine what it's going to be like in heaven. And if you've been blessed by this preacher of the gospel who's a sinner saved by grace, what's it going to be like when you're in the presence of the altogether lovely one, fairest among 10,000, the spotless Lamb of God? What a glory that will be. When you at last get to glory, as I pray you all do, and you see the glorious face of Christ, you will be so humble that your faith was so small. But Jesus will say, no, no, sing. And if they sing something other than psalms in heaven, you will sing, though great distress my soul befell, the Lord my God did all things well. To God, all praise and glory. That's the faith, victory that has overcome the world, even your faith. And with that, three minutes past time, I am done. But, but, <laughs> not without giving you folks a wonderful word of thanks. I have missed my family but the Lord has given me mothers and fathers and sons and daughters, once again fulfilling the promise this simple preacher believes is in the Word. And I thank you for that. I will be, go back home with precious memories of the way you've heard the Word of God, 
of the way you've listened to me with all of this. And I do pray that it's been a blessing for you. And I do hope that the Lord in His providence might give us an opportunity to fellowship again this side of heaven. But if not, I will look forward to it with all of you in glory. I do have a prayer request. Coming out here, the wonderful airline that I was privileged to have to come out here canceled its flight. But I was able to get out here and in the process met a lady to present the gospel to, so it was worth it. But at 12.30 a.m., I'm to leave Los Angeles Airport on a red-eye special to get out to LaGuardia Airport at 10.30 because very early in the evening of Friday, my second son, Jonathan, is going to graduate. And if I miss that flight and I don't get to California, then my wife might say, you pack your bags and go all the way back, and then I might take you up on some of those offers for housing sooner than later. So as much as I love you, please pray that I get that flight and get back. Let's stand and let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, the fellowship together has been wonderful. How good and how blessed it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. It is as oil upon the beard, even upon Aaron's beard, that flows down to the hem of the garment. There is life forevermore, and we have sensed it. We have sensed something of the glory of the powers of the age to come, not only your holiness and your justice, but also your glorious mercy and grace. And for that we bless you. And we ask that from your word ministered this week and from our fellowship together, we would return to our homes safely and on time. And we pray that we would return to our homes with a fresh zeal to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Remind us, O oh, great victor over the devil, that the battle is yours. But do work in us that faith and privilege us with the great blessing of grace to enjoy that victory that does overcome the world, even our faith, through Jesus Christ the Lord, in whom we pray and in whom together we confirm our desire to be heard by saying, Amen.